0: you're listening to the podcast of King's Cross Church. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us. My name's Chip, I'm one of the pastors here. This is our chapter 4 Q&A for chapter 4 of our year-long sermon series all the way through the Bible called The Story. Joining me today are two of our staff members and good friends of mine, Megan Parton, our discipleship coordinator. Megan, how are you?
1: Good. How are you guys doing? Happy to be here.
0: Outstanding. And Josh Rowe mine, another one of our pastors. Welcome, Josh. I'm outstanding as well. In fact, that's where you found me,
2: standing in the <laughs> field.
1: But oh. oh. um,
0: hopefully, people will keep listening. Yeah. <laughs> Off mic is Sunday. our outstanding worship leader and tech genius, uh, Jacob Benton, who uh, we would be remiss not to note is working to record this podcast on his birthday. Aww. So uh, happy, happy birthday, birthday to you! <laughs> to you. <laughs> wow. We're glad you were born, brother. And Praise God for old. you. Our goal in these QA podcasts is to answer some questions um, that have been asked to us either uh, as people have emailed the story at kingscross.org. And if you have a question, you can always send one in about any of the sermons or the chapters that we're in along the way. Or some of these are questions that have come up in our conversations with people in the lobby after church or in community groups or grow groups. And we just kind of make note of them as we work our way through each chapter. And then come together and try to answer uh, as many of them as we can. And so we will jump into doing that now. Um, Who wants to kick us off?
1: I got one. All right, shoot. All right. Um, I hope that y'all have not been sleeping on the Old Testament because it is jam-packed with all kinds of interesting things. Mm. And I think I made a lot of assumptions in the past that books like Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus are boring, um, but they're fascinating and filled with all kinds of awesome things for us to learn about God. Um, so Agreed. for first question um, is from numbers 21 and it's about the bronze snake. <laughs> so basically yeah so basically Israel is disobeying God they're not listening and then all of a sudden God sends these poisonous snakes among the people and they're being bitten and a ton of them are dying right? So that's pretty traumatizing. Mm. Um, and the people come to Moses and they're like, Hey, can you fix this? Can you intercede for us? Can you, can you ask God? And, um, and if you want to read more about this, this is numbers 21, four to nine. Um, and then Moses ends up putting a bronze snake, bronze snake on a cross and lifting it up and asking the people to look at the snake to be healed. So the question that we have, which is a really good question is of all the ways that God could have healed the Israelites, why did they have to look at a snake on a pole? Hmm. What do y'all think?
0: Well, I've got an idea, and before I throw that out there, let me just point out that uh, we pointed, or we posted rather, a um, pretty interesting article. Sometimes what we'll do on the story page of the website is we'll post some additional reading material there. There is actually uh, a very interesting archaeological. And maybe you'd say anthropological um, kind of tracing of this idea of a snake on a pole that heals uh, throughout history is um, you can go back and read that. That's on the website. I won't, I won't get into it, but it's pretty cool. And if you've ever looked at uh, some of our modern imagery on ambulances as they go by and things like that, the idea of a snake around a pole that heals is one that's still with us. And so um, check that out if you get a chance. OK, here's my actual answer to the question. Um I think uh, that one of the things that's happening here, as is happening throughout the whole story, is that God is beginning to reveal principles to his people about how he saves. Not only that he can save, but also um, how that comes about. So by the time we get, for example into the new testament jesus is going to specifically use this about himself and say that as moses lifted up the snake so too he had to be lifted up and that all that looked to him would be saved so one of the things that i think is interesting here in the story of the fiery serpents uh and the snake being lifted up is that the people had to look to the very thing that was killing them in order to be saved wow so the thing that's bringing death which is, in this case, a literal snake, is the thing that is lifted up. And when they look at that, by faith in God's promise, that if they looked at that, they would be saved. So, too, Jesus becomes our sin. And the thing that is killing us, sin, which has separated us from God by both nature and choice, is lifted up. Scripture says Jesus becomes he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of god so jesus becomes our sin he is lifted up and now all those who look to him in faith trusting the promise of god that through god's grace and faith in christ they can be saved will also be saved um, not necessarily from death in this life unless the lord returns uh soon but ultimately from eternal death uh, as they'll receive eternal life by God's grace through faith. So I, I think there's a principle happening there where we look to the very thing that is killing us, trusting in the promises of God, and we're saved by faith.
1: Hmm. That's good.
0: That's awesome.
2: And um, I think when I first, the first time I came across Numbers um, 21 and was looking at this and then seeing how Jesus compares himself to the snake in John three, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, "That just doesn't seem right." <laughs> like, <laughs> that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would is He literally saying that He's the snake on a pole? Mm-hmm. And then when you look at Second Corinthians five that you just quoted, mm-hmm. He became sin for us, and so just that the thing that's killing us is sin, but Jesus became sin for us; therefore, He became life to us mm-hmm. is just incredible. So. That's how you get saved, Mm -hmm. by looking to Jesus. Uh, But that's how you walk in your faith as well. And a couple of things, uh, when I think about those people that were bit by a snake, like if I was bit by a snake and somebody said, just look at the bronze snake on a pole and you'll be healed, I would have some serious doubts about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) do you think I wouldn't look at that snake? I would. (laughs) If that was my only hope, and I'm like, I'm looking at it, even though I've got some doubts about it. And it's not, there's no indication in Numbers 21 about the level of faith they had. It's just whether or not they actually looked at the snake and they were saved. And so when I think about like walking with Jesus now, after I became a Christian, there's some days where I got a lot of faith. There's some days where I got very little faith. Mm -hmm. But how do I make it? I simply look to Jesus. I think about Hebrews 12 too, that says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. That's right. And so even when I'm struggling with a lack of faith, how do I get more faith? I just look to Jesus because he's the one that actually gives it to me. So anyway, I just think. It's echoes
0: of the Passover there, right? So people, God says, uh, the 10th plague, I'm going to send the angel of death. um, But if you will bring this lamb into your home, Slaughter it. Put its blood on the doorpost. The angel of death will pass over your house, and the firstborn won't die in your house. And so, people did that. And what they were saved by was not the strength of their faith in that mm-hmm. promise. What they were saved by is the blood of the lamb.
2: Yeah, you actually planted when you preached that sermon. You planted that seed in my mind. So therefore, when I look yeah. to this as I'm interpreting this, so you're that
0: getting the well. And, and we'll just see that again and again. Yeah. Where it w- are you willing to trust the promises of God, even if it seems a little strange? Mm -hmm.
1: I think another interesting thing, it's not necessarily an answer to the original question, but just um, an interesting observation is that um, you see both the fall and redemption in one symbol here. So the serpent, you know, was in the Garden of Eden. And then the cross is where Jesus died to save us. And so you see both. I can't, guys, I wish I could say that I came up with that on my own. Just take credit for it. I didn't. Um, But that's the fall and redemption in one symbol. So they're looking at, you know, their own need for God and the future of what is to come with Jesus' redemption at the same time.
0: Golly. it's good. Very good. It's good.
1: Okay. Um, Is that why you
2: asked that question? Were you the one that asked the question? I
1: didn't.
2: Oh, you didn't? Oh, I thought you asked a question just About so you snake? could yeah, drop the mic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good, so she could tee you
0: mm-hmm. up or else yeah, answer. The answer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted a mic drop at the end. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, okay, uh, here's another one. So Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The question is this is an easy one. So it's a softball theological question. Oh, good. We can probably good. just answer it and move on. <laughs> uh, if I'm a Christian, or if I would become a Christian, I guess, did I choose God or did God choose me? Josh?
1: Yeah, yeah Josh so gets the easy one.
2: I got it. I'll knock it out in 15 <laughs> seconds and we can move on to the next one. Um, I actually had a buddy. It's a really of, good question. I had a buddy of mine that um, he had a A shirt on the front of the shirt it says I chose this t-shirt and on the back it said this t-shirt chose me (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) so does that answer it or does that just leave you even more confused Uh. I think first we need to look at and say that you know we need to look at the context that Deuteronomy 7 is um not specifically talking about individual Christian salvation Mm -hmm. like it's this is the story of Israel. And this is where God is saying, I'm, I'm choosing, I've chosen a nation. And so, you know, I think just mere numbers, just math would say, and the fact that, you know, even Jesus says later that um, narrow is the road that leads to heaven and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. So we just got to assume that not everybody are believers in the nation of Israel. And I think the Old Testament stories are real evident of that. And so this is him choosing. Well, and
0: Paul says explicitly in Romans not all who are children of Abraham. Oh, very right? good. Yep. No, that's exactly yep. right. Okay. So not not all, but the New Testament is clear that not right. literally every biological descendant of Abraham was saved. And Hebrews 11 tells us clearly but some of them were by faith. Yeah. So yeah, so no,
2: that's that's yeah. right. So that that explains it really well. So but I think what we're learning through the Old Testament is that Even though God is doing different things at different times, we're learning about his character, which never changes. And so, and God is a God who chooses. And we do see in the New Testament where specifically when it's talking about salvation, I'll give you a a passage, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, which is an incredibly comforting passage to me, is... um, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself oh. as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so the New Testament, particularly you look in the book of Ephesians, you look in um, the book of Romans, um, Jesus says in John six forty four that no one can come to the Father unless he draws them. And so God does choose um, His people for salvation. Um, You know, there has been debates over the century as far as whether or not we choose God, or does God choose us? It was a guy named John Calvin that um, had, out of his teaching, came a doctrine that ended up turning into um, something that we have today that people fight an acronym that people fight over, and it's called tulip. And so, in tulip, it Josh's favorite flower. It's my favorite flower. (laughs) It's funny. That we're, T, totally depraved, and that means that um, everything we do, even our most righteous works are like filthy rags to God, that we're always sinners, that um, God unconditionally elects us to himself. It has nothing to do with what I do, but it's everything to do with God and him choosing me. That um, we are, um, I can't spell, oh, there's uh, limited atonement, and so this addresses the question, did did Jesus die for the world or did he die for the elect? And then there's um, irresistible grace that when God... Nobody
0: disagrees on that L one, right? Yeah,
2: I'm going to come back to that one. So, yeah, there's irresistible uh, grace so that when God gives grace to me, that I can't resist it. And there's perseverance of the saints, which says that, um, that once saved, always saved. That once I become a Christian, I can't lose my salvation. And then once I become a Christian, that I will grow in my faith. And so when I look at something like that and I filter it through this idea of God choosing me, I found great comfort and there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lose my pride very quickly when I think through that lens and I'm humble before the Lord saying, there's nothing I can bring. But I'm also feel incredibly loved, the fact that I'm a Christian, that God has made this decision to bring me into his kingdom. And so the whole L thing, limited atonement, that just proves that I'm not God and I can't understand. And so I don't even really say that this is my doctrine. I just say that this is helpful when I think about what God is doing behind the scenes when I came to Christ and when I'm sharing the gospel and other people come to Christ. Even when I share the gospel with other people, it's not up to me. It's God that's doing the work. And so is there a part that I play? Absolutely, yes. I mean, over and over in the scriptures that nobody becomes a Christian unless they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, unless they make the decision to do so. How do those two things work together? Well, I go back to my friend's T-shirt. I think both are true at the same time. Sure. Um, so, But I think at the end of the day, if you just ask me the question, that which you did, did, <laughs> I, did I choose God? Yes. Did God choose me? Yes. Okay. How mm-hmm. can both be Agree. true? Yeah. I don't know, but I just know God is. I know that if I'm a Christian, which I am, and if anybody comes to Christ, I, there's nothing I can credit myself for making that decision. That's right. But I made that decision, and somehow behind the scenes, God put in my heart the desire to receive him as Savior and Lord. And so for that to happen, I had to, in the desires of my heart, overcome what I otherwise would have chosen, and that is hell. And so anyway, both are true. Uh, A buddy of mine told me when we were talking about this one time, he actually was discipling me in college. He says, if anyone goes to heaven, he has no one to thank but God. Mm-hmm. But if anyone goes to hell, he has no one to blame but himself. It's good. That's and a so, good word. Anyway,
1: yeah. Um, since Josh opened up with some hot takes, I'll I'll add a few and, <laughs> and hot good takes, and y'all can tell me to dial back if I need to. But I think, um, you know, I went to a Christian school. I went to seminary. Grateful for all of those tools. But a lot of times when we enter into this conversation, we kind of make it more about a theological discussion when both of the which is important but when both of these passages or two passages I'm thinking about are really to bring us a comfort which is what I love that you touched on Josh because context is is king here because if you read second or I mean if you read Deuteronomy 7 it's in the context of They're probably about, they're probably really nervous about going into these nations. And God's telling them, here's why I'm calling you to do this, because you are my people that I've chosen. You don't have to worry about all of this stuff that's going to be there. You're set apart. I want you to live differently. Um, He's comforting them with knowing the really scary thing that they're about to walk into. And unfortunately, they don't really listen that well. When I think about Romans 8, it's not necessarily to give us anxiety over am I chosen or is this person chosen or not, but rather to give us comfort in knowing this is the life as a believer. We have the Holy Spirit. You know, We have been chosen and sealed and promised, and that's something that we can claim. Um, if you read Romans 7 right before, it's all about how do you you know, basically live and not be a slave to the flesh, right? So what do I need after, on the heels of that? I need to be remembered that I am one of God's chosen people. Because of that, I have the Holy Spirit in me that can fight this flesh that, gosh, just seems exhausting most days, every day. So, anyway, I, that's a, a side note. But for me, I think a lot of these verses about did God choose, did I choose God or did God choose me? A lot of those passages are there to comfort us as believers and not that's cause right. us questions or confusion, but to remind us we are God's chosen.
2: Yeah, and I think, and I'll say this, uh, so good. And I'll, I'll say this one statement, and then Chip, you can clean up everything that that needs cleaning <laughs> that up we here. Launched into. Yeah. So the other question, I think, the other side of the coin is, well, if God chooses us, what we should, what should we conclude about those that He doesn't choose? Like, how how do we, where do we go with that? And I and, and I know this is really simple, and I'm just okay with just making this simple statement, and then just walking away and saying, I just trust God with it. Is that it goes back to what my friend told me that everybody deserves damnation everybody is deserves to be separated from God because of our sin that promise was given and early on in Genesis and we made the decision to receive death and so that's what we get for our sin that's what we deserve but where I camp out in is not what about those that God didn't choose because that's the choice that we've all made. And I just say, but God has chosen some and for out of that decision that I get to be part of that. And I get to, um, have a relationship with God and live with him forever in heaven. And so it's really tough. It's really tough to think, but there's no blame on God's part. Romans nine wrestles with this and says, um, You know, struggling with uh, Paul's writing, and he's given these hypothetical questions, and he talks about Pharaoh, and for this purpose God raised Pharaoh up, and in that he says that God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills, and then in verse 19, who then does God still find fault? Who can resist His will? But who you, a man, to answer back to God? And so I just take this these passages that we're talking about and I just find incredible comfort and I also find incredible motivation to get the gospel out to as many people as possible so that everybody has the opportunity to choose to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. All right, clean it up. Yeah, no,
0: no, 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 no. Um, I, so some, that's a lot of really good stuff. A couple of just kind of rapid fire thoughts maybe. Okay. Um, cause I don't think there's anything there to clean up. Um, there, one of the things we talk a lot about at King's Cross is we're comfortable with tension yes. theologically. Yes. To try to explain away in easy, pithy answers, um, weighty, eternal, divine truths that people have wrestled with for at least 3,500 years, if not beyond, is arrogance. And mm-hmm. we, we want to take a posture of humility mm-hmm. um, before the Lord and before that's each good. other. So, for example, Josh, you started your answer by quoting Jesus in John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yeah. Well, that's the words of Christ. Yep. Um, verse 51, which is the same paragraph, it's the same discourse. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So You say, well, which one is it? Is the bread of life available to everyone or is it only available to those whom the Father draws? Well, Jesus appears to be comfortable with that tension. So what I would say is there has never in the history of the world, nor will there ever be, anyone who longed to place their faith in Christ or repent of their sin and trust him to whom God said no. 100%. Right. 100%. Right. That's never happened.
1: And yeah. ultimately, when the Father calls, are you going to listen? Correct. You know.
0: So I do think it's important, and you both said this, to remember where we are in the story. So this is a chapter four podcast. Mm-hmm. We, we are in the early stages of the Old Testament, and God is beginning to show us what it looks like for him to call a people to himself. And so uh, the real debate that people have in history, if you look at the history of the church over, over this question, and, and you'll find this topic um, all all over the place, beginning probably as early as Genesis six with Noah and going all the way through to the end. The real crux of the question is who takes the first step? Who, who initiates salvation? Does Mm -hmm. God, does God tap you on the shoulder and, and woo you and pursue you and, and call you and send the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to turn your heart of stone to a heart of flesh, um, to lead you to repentance and faith uh, by grace, or do you take the first step? And basically, people argue over that constantly all the time. The best analogy I ever heard of it for it, and all analogies break down at some point, but John Piper one time said, when you strike a match, what comes first, the heat or the light? I don't know. That they're both so simultaneously bound up in one another yeah. that it would be hard to determine well which happened first. And so um, I, I just I'm just not really interested in splitting theological hairs and trying to dance on the head of pins about things. What I would say is um, you cannot read the scripture uh, for the very 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 beginning. Literally, in the beginning of Genesis, you cannot read the scripture and come away with any other uh, humble, honest, on its face, intellectual answer other than God is sovereign in salvation. Yeah. God saves whom he will save. He is the authority in salvation. There there is no other way. You, You have to do all types of mental and theological gymnastics to do away with that.
1: Which is a good thing because he's the one doing the saving.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And you cannot read the scriptures and come up with any other solution or any other honest, humble, intellectual, honest face answer other than everybody has a responsibility to respond to the free offer of the gospel. And Romans 1 tells us that there's no one who's without excuse. What can be known about God has been made plain through creation. We have rejected the truth about God for a lie. So there, there, there is no one out there who, who could claim, before God, that they are innocent. And so the burden, Josh, uh, is on us. Well, and that's evangelism. why, and
2: that's why I would say that you know when you ask the question, who takes the first step?
0: First step ought to be to go share the gospel with somebody well, that you're concerned about.
2: Well, that's exactly. That's <laughs> what, now <laughs> well, that's that you're a believer, now that's the that's first right. step. But in recognizing, and you do share we are called to share the gospel because we recognize that really who took the first step was man. When we sinned against we sinned, God, that's, right. that's the
0: first step. And now it's, so Romans five were sinners by nature, right? Right. And, and everything, that's, why was to blame, and but man. that's exactly right. Yeah. So I, it, what we're going to say at King's cross um, is w- we, uh, we believe in the sovereignty of God. You will hear us pray from the stage all the time, we almost, in, in almost every sermon, you'll, you'll hear at least me do at least two things. I will plead with people to turn to God in repentance and faith, and I will plead with the Lord to save people. Mm. Yep. And I, we're just super comfortable with that tension. Yeah. So
2: Generally, that's how Paul, I've heard said, how he writes, how he lives his life. He wrote and he believed as
0: if it was all up to God, but, man, he worked that's right. directed as if it feels all at the man. That's right. It, it, so mm. in, we, if you run in, now we're kind of off on a rabbit trail, but it, if you run into someone who has such a high theological opinion of the sovereignty of God in salvation that they don't feel the need to share the gospel, they don't understand God. That's, so that's good.
1: good or if they use it as a means to be dismissive. or know, right. I love that you brought up the humility aspect. Like that's the, right. the deeper that we dive into scripture and theology, the more empathetic and caring it will make us. Yeah.
0: Right. So, so if you're going to point, and we'll get here later in the story, but if you're going to point to the theology of Paul and you're going to start labeling yourself as, you know, whatever theological camp you want to label yourself in, and the result of that is that you don't have a heart for missions, you don't have a heart for evangelism, you're not sharing the gospel with lost people in the places you live, learn, work, and play, then you've misunderstood Paul. Yep. And the issue is with you, not the theological system that you're clinging to. So stop arguing with people. And start reading reading your Bible. Well, first read your Bible and see what it actually says, and then go share the gospel. (laughs) Come talk to me and Josh and Megan, and we'll help you get trained on how to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, well, off the soapbox, back onto the main trail from the rabbit trail. (laughs) And uh, do we have another question? Josh, you got a question for us? Oh, uh,
2: yes, I do. All right, so. In Deuteronomy twenty sixteen through 18. So let me read this passage to set it up. Okay. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, <laughs> but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Glad that's over with. I didn't practice that. As the Lord your God has commanded... That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you and so you sin against the Lord your God. So basically, if I can summarize this, Megan, and this question is for you, it seems like God is saying, I want you to kill a bunch of people so you don't sin. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> It doesn't seem like that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That's what he's
2: saying. So how could God order the complete destruction of nations? And it's kind of a two-part question, but first one is, how could God order the complete destruction of nations and still be good?
0: And and just to make sure that um, in case you're new, or maybe you're just jumping into the sermon series, This isn't the only place we see this. Yep. So we see God destroying the Egyptians before the Exodus. We see this riddled throughout um, uh, Joshua as God's people go into the promised land. We're going to see things like this in Judges. I I, I mean, the, the Old Testament is riddled with this idea. So, so we're not sometimes it's out God
2: it. doing it directly. Sometimes He's using people That's right. to do it.
0: So, so we're not picking out some obscure passage and and trying to make a big deal out right. of it. This is just a really good example of it. So, go ahead.
1: Hundred percent. So, I think the first uh, the first thing to kind of jump into that will probably take the least amount of time is that um, God is. I mean, to go back to God being sovereign, God is in charge of life and death. So. God values life more than we can. Like, mm. if we value life, he values life a thousand times more, right? So God is the giver of life. He's the creator of life. And then God is also sovereign over death. And so if we've done something sinful, um, which clearly these nations have done, um, they do deserve death because of the sin that right. is in their hearts and their actions. Um, but I know that's a you know an easy... Um, to go back to theology, theological truth and belief to kind of talk about, but then you're like, practically, it still seems so grievous. And one of the things that I want to encourage you all to do is to know your Bibles like crazy because this is, I think, without a doubt, one of the number one things that people that are not Christians will use from the Old Testament Mm. and the New Testament is how can you worship and love a God who um, is okay with genocide or, or, com- or ki- commands people to kill a bunch of people. And so you need to be prepared to answer that question because um, I've had people ask me before. Um, and again, context is, is important here. So I spent a little bit of time just researching the Canaanites, and he gives several uh, examples here of people that they need to destroy. But the Canaanites, uh, for example, they committed devious sexual acts Um, They worshipped demon idols and they also uh, engaged in child sacrifice. So I would hope that as people that love and honor God, we would want God to demonstrate justice uh, against these grievous types of evil. Right. Like if people are, are sacrificing children to a demon God, we should want to drive them out and destroy them, you know, or not want to, but take that seriously. And so I justice
2: think, needs to be done.
1: Justice needs to be done. So I think in order for us to understand what God is saying here, it's also important for us to understand how evil and how bad things really were. We talked about this a little bit with the flood, uh, in, in one of the, the former podcasts where. We just did, don't realize how awful and terrible and evil the world was for God to get to a place where he'd grieve that he made it. And I think this is kind of a similar thing here where God's not just you know, out of nowhere saying kill all these nations because they're on your land. That's not God. That's not his character.
2: Yeah. Particularly in Genesis six, five of God, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, only evil all the time.
1: Right. So, so even now when we um, are around people that may not be Christians, they're not, you know, this is a whole nother side thing. They are evil, but because of common grace, they still do good actions in addition to their sin. So for me to wrap my head around only doing evil all the time and this this kind of monstrosity like child sacrifice, sexual deviance, demon gods, it's like, okay, well, we should take it seriously when God's telling them to destroy them. And then secondly, God knew that they would fall into it, you know? And so this is history. We know what happens. The Israelites didn't listen. Um, they did not destroy uh, the these nations like God told them to, and they fell privy to it. So next thing you know, they're worshiping these gods. They're intermarrying um, men and women that they shouldn't be intermarrying with, and who knows? They may have done some of these terrible, awful things that God told them not to do because they didn't obey. And so when we don't obey and we don't take what God tells us to do seriously, it's detrimental. Um, so I think that's that's one thing. And then the other thing I would just encourage you guys to do is to read the stuff around it because God's really clear with these people groups that they need to destroy them. Then there's other times where God says, drive these people out or, you know, even in, in chapter 21, he's talking about the fair treatment of captured women. So like God's heart is still for those who would repent to come to him. Um, and we see that with, we talked about Rahab a little bit on the last podcast, I think. Um, and she was from a pagan nation and God spared her from genocide. Um, we talk about Ruth, uh, in this chapter as well. Like she was a Moabite. She used to worship pagan gods. We can see that she turned from her gods to follow Yahweh. So God still welcomes people that are from these nations into his family. It's just having that posture of repentance. And it seems to be really clear from this passage that these nations in particular wanted nothing to do with God, wanted nothing to do with repentance, and so that's what made it okay for, uh, for them to be destroyed. I know that was a long answer.
0: I think it's a good answer. I, I think um, Ruth is a great uh, example there, because what we get in the story of Ruth is a picture of one person um, who comes to repentance and faith. And so you see that uh, God is not unjust in the way that he's dealing with individuals.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but there are times when uh, his, justice, uh, his justice is administered um, individually, and there are times when that justice is administered uh, en masse. Right? I, I think for me, the question is, what is your starting point? Is your basic starting point that humans are good, and they deserve eternal reward. Uh, or is your basic starting point that as soon as humans rebel against God, what they deserve is death, and anything they get other than that is grace. Yep. The Bible's starting point is that the minute that you sin, and we all have, you are deserving of death. Yeah, relationally, spiritually emotionally, mentally, physically that anything you get every breath you draw after your first sin and you're born with a sin nature so quite literally every breath you draw um you you are deserving of wrath. That's now right. that's harsh, but that's the Bible's position. If you don't like that, that's fine. Uh you know, email us and let's talk about it some more. We can go to coffee and hang out and we'll we'll dive into some of this, but um, my, my question to you would be, if you believe that people are genuinely good and should not be punished, then there has to be a line that you draw somewhere. Yeah. Because nobody would say that about uh, Attila the Hun or uh, Hitler, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so um, if we look, let's run with World War II, right? If we look at the destruction of Nazi Germany as a governmental system, as a military force. Um, I've never heard anyone argue that was unjust. Usually the theological arguments that you hear around that is, well, where was God while the atrocities were yeah. happening? Um, well, m- you know, I, I take this with a grain of salt. It's just an example. All examples break down. But, you know, m- maybe God was fueling Patton's Third Army's drive north to relieve the embattled soldiers in Bastone in the middle of the Ardennes to overthrow Nazi Germany and stop the advance westward. Yeah. So you know there again it's hear me with some grace on that but <clears throat> what i'm saying is everybody has some idea of this is the line and um so who gets to draw the line do you get to draw the line on what the hittites and jebusites and parasites were allowed to do and how far their rebellion against god their sacrifice of children their gross sexual immorality was allowed to go or does god get to draw that line and so um if your answer is, well, I draw the line, then it varies across culture. It varies across yep. people. It varies across history. Varies, like so somebody has to be the judge. And everybody's heart cries out for justice. Nobody wants to believe in a God that's not just.
1: And part of that's probably even God-given.
0: That's right. Yeah. To the extent that we're image bearers of God, we, we reflect his heart. He has a heart for justice. And so do we, the the challenge I think sometimes is that we kind of want mercy for us and people like us and justice for people who hurt us and people like us. And that's a, you know, that's a hard thing. So to say, well, you know, God shouldn't have destroyed all these people. Well, uh, okay. Then you're drawing the line. And so you're God. So that's great
2: stuff and i think something that's really helpful for me is to think first why were we created and to think from an eternal what were we created for and so we were created to glorify god be in a relationship with him and we were created for eternity and so it was not meant for us to live in a temporary state apart from god Eternity is where we're headed. That's right. And so we're just here temporarily anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think about yes and amen to God is holy. And when someone dies, they deserve that death. I think also in the character. and who. Which died. is
0: not to say that we literally on this podcast or as a church or even God rejoice in that.
2: No, 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 no. No, it's real clear. God takes that, no delight. It's not a desire that anyone right. should
0: perish. That's right. Like, nor, nor do we. That doesn't, like, it's heartbreaking. It, it's it's tragic. tragic. Just to be clear that we're, we're, we're not raining down judgment on people. We're just saying this is the Bible's position. I'm sorry, right?
2: You yeah. No. And the other thing is that uh, Revelation 118 says that Jesus is sovereign and he holds the keys to death. And so uh, to think like we're only here for 70, 80, 90 years and everyone's going to die ultimately as a result of general and specific sin. And God is so sovereign that regardless of how someone dies, he's ultimately responsible for the timing. Mm. And so he gets to make the choice on when people are going to actually, when they're going to enter into eternity. Sorry, I've numbered and, your days. And, and sometimes it's early and sometimes it's later. Uh, but it's always best for his glory. And especially for those he's chosen, it's best for their good. And so I think that... Um, when we the the difficult question in this for me is not the sovereignty of God and not the fact that we deserve death. the difficult question for me is, is this is the kind of the follow up in doing so, and particularly in this passage was God commanding people to break the fifth commandment
1: mm-hmm.
2: like it's one thing for God to administer justice directly, but what about when he uses people and I don't have a direct verse in the Old Testament to pull from, but I do have something to where I think I see how uh, God does work through people to administer his will. And one specific passage I think about is in Romans 13. That's right. Where it's real clear that God uses government yeah, rulers. That's it. Um, as servants of God, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so now that's specifically talking about the ruler of a particular nation over his people. And if you want to put that on what was going on in the Old Testament. So we have a theocracy, right? the nation of israel where god is ultimately over the nation and we're dealing with this now in chapter five where they're asking for a king and Mm -hmm. ultimately though god is the king Um, but it's real clear that he does use people to administer his wrath and i think what we see here is the principle applied to even outside of the nation as the nation is moving forward toward into the promised land into an area to where this nation will be established And so whether it happens before the nation is there or after the nation is there, and we see Old Testament laws where even wherever the nation is, there are particular uh, sins that deserve capital punishment, even within the nation. But I also think that it is not foreign to how God has set it up to use people to carry out his will. And sometimes it is administering His his wrath, and sometimes it results in people's death.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so the clear move that happens when you move out of the kingdom of Israel as, um, as a God-raised nation state, which I would say happens at the exile, um, what happens between that period uh, and the establishment of the church is that the power of the sword— is transferred from the church to the state. Oh, that's real clear. That's good. It oh, goes from God's mm-hmm. people into the state. Now, you say, well, the state doesn't really wield the power of the sword very well. Yeah, neither did God's that's people. Fair. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Right. We just talked this yeah. past yep. Sunday. I, like, I, like w- we didn't do it well. K- King Saul didn't do it well. Right. Yep. And so uh, Israel did not wield that power perfectly, um, and the state doesn't wield it perfectly. Now, and so um, there are times I think when you know we can read some of these Old Testament stories, and it feels to us archaic and old and ancient and primitive, perhaps even. And we, but but we feel a sense of pride now when we see nations administering justice, doing things that are right, overcoming great evil. You know, I just used World War II as an example, but I think it's a good one. Um, where we see a coalition of nations come together to stop pure evil on a magnitude that the world had not seen before or since. And so if we want to remove God from everything like that now, you know, I I, I would have some caution in that. I I, I would say surely God is involved in current modern-day events where justice is being administered. Um, Is uh, is it being administered perfectly? Uh, Probably not. But it wasn't in the Old Testament either. And so it drives me back to the heart of God and the grace of God and the love of God. Because my question is never, why aren't all people saved? My question is, why are any of us saved? That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Because I know my heart. I don't deserve it. And, you know, I want to be real cautious and humble to say, well, the the people who deserve God's judgment and wrath are the people who've sinned a little bit more than me. I, I just, I got to be careful with that.
1: That, and if the basis for morality is up to us, we will be confused mm. and exhausted. You know, it's like, it's a relief to know that God gives us parameters for how to live, honestly, you know, when it comes to, to these sorts of things. Yeah.
0: I, I My preference is that neither of you determine my eternal state. Oh my gosh, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I would prefer not to bear the weight of judging you. Mm-mm. I'm glad there's a God to do that. Okay, we're, right. we're, um, we're pushing our time here. Why don't we get to, um, to one more, uh, and then we'll move on. Um, well, i tell you what. Why don't we hit one quick, uh, and maybe we can get two in before the end. Right. Um, one of the things that we saw in is the book of Judges, Megan, and we see there a yep. series of imperfect judges, imperfect partial saviors, uh, who point us to the perfect Savior, uh, in Jesus. And yet God used the judges, but there are some things the judges do that we kind of question like, mm, was that a good thing? Was that not? I mean, God is using that person. I'm not really sure. You know, Samson's a good example. Samson's a train wreck disaster, but yep. actually in the end, he becomes a really good picture of Christ. One of the weird things that, well, I think it's weird that we see uh, in judges is this idea of how Gideon tested the Lord in judges chapter six because he laid this fleece out and he kind of says, Hey, um, you know, I, I feel like I ought to be doing what you're telling me to do, but I tell you what, I'll I'll lay this fleece out. And if there's some water on it, then I'll know it's you. And if there's not, then I, that, that strikes us as kind of a weird story. Um, is it okay for us to
1: test God? Mm, That's a good question. Um, so like Chip said, this is in Judges. Um, Judges 6 and we had a really good discussion about this uh, me and Josh in particular beforehand and I think the more that we read this passage the more that that Josh kind of helped me see it's almost like this is less about is he testing God and more that he's asking God for signs because I think it's really clear that it's okay for us to ask God questions Um, and sometimes it's even okay for for us to ask him for signs but Um, but we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more as well. So specifically what Gideon is asking for, um, is for God to give him signs after God's clearly spoken to him and clearly told him what to do and even spoken his identity over him. So if you read in, uh, chapter six and verse 13, um, or verse 12, God tells him as he's giving him this commission, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Okay, and then in fourteen, go in the strength you have. I am sending you. Um, and Gideon's response is, "But how can I deliver Israel? Look, I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm the youngest in my family. Yada yada. Excuse, excuse." And God tells him, "But I will be with you." Mm-hmm. And as if that's not enough, then Gideon says, "Okay, well, let me offer this. You know, this meat. And if if you consume it, then I'll know it's really you, right?" So God. Listens to Gideon or, or responds to Gideon, I should say, rather than listens and absorbs the uh, the sacrifice, and then Gideon's like, okay, yes, I know that you're God, you know. And he goes, he tears down an altar, and then Chippy brought up the fleece. So after the Holy Spirit comes on Gideon, because as we've talked about in the last time in the Old Testament, um, the Spirit would come on them for uh, certain occasions or situations. It wasn't the same as as Christians now, or the Holy Spirit is always with us. Um, so he came on, Gideon, for this task. And then after, as this is happening, Gideon is saying, if you're really going to deliver Israel through me like you've said, I'm going to put this wool out. And if the dew is just on the fleece and the ground's dry, I'll know you were really here.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: well, that happens. Josh, you want to share about why you think Yeah, Gideon I just think it's kind of funny.
2: He probably came out the next day and looked at this uh, wet fleece and the... Um ground is dry and he starts thinking okay well maybe that just happens every day if you stick a fleece on the ground and the Uh deuce collects on the fleece so he came back and he says okay look this time God can we try one more time and let's let the ground be wet but the fleece be dry so I just think it's kind of funny
1: I do think that's funny
0: do you think it was a North Face fleece, Patagonia?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know which
2: one holds the moisture. It's a wall.
1: Clearly, right. quality for it to you know be dry. It wasn't a range jacket. Sorry, go ahead. That's so good. So then, the, yeah. So he asks reverse for the next morning. He's like, okay, well tomorrow, um, if if the if everything if the dew if the grass is dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll really know that you're God, and let me have this one more test. Um, and God responds and does it. Um, a couple, a couple takeaways that I really had from that is,
0: so God God speaks to him. God consumes the sacrifice of meat. God he gives him the, the, the sign thing twice. of the fleet, and then he asks him for
1: it again. And then he asks him for it All again. Right, go ahead. And so, to me, it's kind of which I think this goes back to so many instances in the Bible, in our own life. What is really going on in our hearts? What is the motivations in our hearts here? Uh, Because it's okay for us to cry out to God. It's okay for us to ask God where he's at. It's okay for us to ask God questions. You know, um, we were talking about earlier in the New Testament how it says the testing of your faith produces endurance. Um, It's okay for us to, to ask these things. I think demanding signs from God after he's clearly already commissioned us and spoken truth over us is a little bit different. Like, to me, that seems... Some of what I was saying earlier was the word of God should be enough to where we don't need all of these signs that Gideon is asking for. Like God told him he was a valiant warrior. God told him he was with him. God told him, don't be afraid. He showed up to him in person. It says the angel of the Lord came in verse 11. So, you know, for us in our own personal lives, why would we need signs or why would we pray for God to give us specific signs when we have the sign that he, you know, the ultimate sign of his love is, um, through Jesus, but then s- s- in, in addition to that, Scripture, right? Like, that's how we know who Jesus is and who God is because we get to meet with Him and see who He is in His Word every day. Like, why is that not enough? Why do we need these secondary signs mm-hmm. when we clearly have the Word of God before us? So I think that's one thing. And then the other thing... um. That I thought was really interesting about this passage is that God is patient with him even when he asks for those signs. Mm-hmm. God doesn't rebuke him for asking for the signs. He doesn't say, Why isn't this, a, you know, why is my word not enough for you? He responds with actually doing it. And I think in our lives, you know, we can, we can take that as well. Like there are times where we might ask God for signs and he might give them to us. There are times where we might ask God for signs and he doesn't give them to us. And he just says, keep being faithful and reading my word and obeying, you know? Um, and ultimately, again, it goes back to the heart stuff because if you read a few chapters later in uh, Judges 8, Gideon tells the Israelites, oh, oh, don't worship me. Um, you know, the Lord will rule over you. But then let me make this request. Give me an earring. Give me some jewelry from all this plunder. I'm going to make an ephod, which he's not supposed to make. Only the priests are supposed to do that. And then all these Israelites come and worship the ephod, and you know they're in all this debauchery. So it, it just seems like Gideon's heart was kind of always off base here. Like he never really just wanted to take God at his word. He wanted to cling to insecurity and uncertainty and, and pride, which is what we see happening at the end of Judges 8.
2: i think glad me. we've moved past that yeah
1: I never struggle with that now
2: I think for me what's helpful is to filter my thoughts and my interaction with God like this it's okay uh, to ask God's God questions but it's not okay to question God
1: hmm. ooh you? that's good so okay, Pastor. put
0: that on a t-shirt
2: yeah <laughs> one on the front <laughs> one on the back and I think and I know this isn't like a direct connection but um, I look at the question that Mary asked the angel and the question that Zechariah asked the angel in the New Testament before Jesus was born. Zechariah is John the Baptist's dad, and uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and both of them had questions about this miraculous birth that was going to happen in each one of their families. And the posture of Zechariah's heart, we can't see it, but we just assume it, was there in such a way that where he was probably questioning God. And so, therefore, he was disciplined for it. He couldn't speak for a good bit of time. And then Mary was given a favorable answer, and she was not disciplined before God. So I think it could be that he questioned God, and she just asked God a question. Yeah, yep. I think
0: based on God's response, that's, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: It's all the mo- what's going on in your heart? Sure. What are the motivations in your heart?
0: Yeah, I think, Megan, you point out something that's uh, important for us to keep in mind. You, you need to remember, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this series, is because it's important that um, we have in our mind, where are we in the story? And so Gideon does not have the fullness of God's self-revelation yet. He may have Moses' law um, and and have had access to that, but uh, the kings haven't come yet, and the prophets haven't come yet, and Jesus hasn't come yet, and the church has not been established yet. And uh, the fullness of God's self-revelation um, isn't there. So uh, Jesus is much testier about this in the New Testament when people demand signs, and he says, the only sign you're going to be given is the sign of Jonah. In other words, my resurrection. And if the resurrection of Jesus is not enough for you, th- there's really not a sign that's going to be enough. It's
1: good. That's and a good so word.
0: I think we have to remember that we don't live in the time of the judges. Um, we, we live... 2,000 years after the fullness of God's self-revelation has come. And so it's important for us um, not to put God to the test. I do think we want to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We want to ask godly men and women around us for affirmation when we feel like God's leading us to do certain things. We want to search God's word as the Bereans did. We want to test all things, hold on to what is good. There's clear guidance in that. We, We don't walk through life... Um, you know, with our eyes closed, numb, just feeling around in the dark because yep. the light has come to us. And so we should walk in the light that we have. Um, but we definitely will be cautious about putting God to the test. OK, we are probably nearing uh, the endurance of our listeners ears. Josh, um, why don't we close on a question that I think is relatively um, a straightforward far, answer to I know. Thank you, mom, for listening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we see very clearly in the Old Testament is God's holiness um, and that sinful people cannot be, for example, in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Mm. There is judgment on these nations that gets rained down. Uh, Imperfect judges don't last. How is it that if God is holy and he cannot abide sin, that any of us, knowing that we commit sin, can draw near to him?
2: And so just making sure I'm okay on the language, um, abide sin means have a relationship with sin or live in the presence yeah, of God sin. Yes, I can't be in the presence. Sin be pre- cannot yeah.
0: be, that which is holy cannot be around the unholy, right?
2: right? So
0: there is no sin in the presence of God.
2: And so that is true. So you right. start there, that God is holy and man is sinful. That's what we were talking about at the beginning and really mm-hmm. the bulk of this podcast. Yeah. And so... Uh, we're all so amazed that God would save anyone and invite anyone into his presence. And so first of all, we should be amazed at how he did it. And how he did it was that he got down off his throne as Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life in our place, died a death that only we deserve. You talked about it in Second Corinthians five twenty-one. And took on our sin so that now we can be in the presence of God. So mm-hmm. the answer is how can that happen is the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so now the question is like, once I live, once I receive Jesus as savior and Lord, Paul talks about the battle with the flesh and he talks about in Romans seven, that there is just this, like the things I do want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I mm-hmm. do. So That's there's right. just struggle. So yeah. how can I be confident? that every day that God's gonna hear my prayers and that I can have a relationship with him on a daily practical basis. A verse that uh, comes to mind for me is two verses in the um, Old Testament, just right back to back, is Psalm 66, 18 through 19, uh, where we see, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Mm. And so that is true. That's why sinners can't have a relationship with the Holy God. Verse 19, is incredibly hopeful and encouraging but God truly God has listened he has attended to the voice of my prayer and so there's two layers to this I think first God has listened and will listen to our prayers because the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin and he separated my sin as far as the east is from the west and so now I can have a relationship with God and I can be confident in Hebrews 4:12 that I can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy in a time of need but also, I need to recognize that the the likelihood that my prayers are going to be more effective if I do not have cherished sin in my heart. Mm. And so, therefore, when I go before the Lord in prayer every day in my relationship with the Lord, I would be very um, wise to model my prayers after the lord's prayer Mm -hmm. where it addresses forgive us as our sins as we've forgiven of those our debtors so i think there needs to be this constant heart check that do i have chair sin in my heart meaning do i holding grudges against other people and are the things that i have that practically get in the way of my relationship with god and in that moment i need to let go and let god come in and i need to experience a a, um, a, a new dose of God's grace in my life, practically speaking, not positionally speaking. And so, and I think um, it practically works in this way as well. How can I really expect God to um, even answer my prayers when it's probably pretty likely that I'm not praying according to God's will because I have cherished sin in my heart. So just a practical relationship with God really doesn't work unless I'm continually asking God to forgive me and given me the power, the, his power by his Holy Spirit to live in repentance so that I can experience God more. So, positionally, we never have to worry about that. That's right. Practically, I do think we need to be constantly walking yep. before the Lord in repentance so that we do not have cherished sin in our hearts and he hears and answers our prayers very
0: effectively. Yep. Yeah, so we're told in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit um, prays for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought and that Jesus never stops making intercession for us as our faithful. So we always have today. that. Yeah. So while God the Father has never been in the presence of sin, God the Son condescended and became sin, and God the Holy Spirit now indwells mm-hmm. those who've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and been justified by his grace through faith, and yet we've yet to be delivered from the ongoing mm-hmm. presence of sin in our life. But thanks be to God, one day we will be. Right. And so this goes right back to where we started. There's a tension there, yep. um, and the scripture is just comfortable with it. So we'll leave it there uh, in the tension of wanting more. We thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully, if you've gotten this far, this was helpful to you. If you is have Jacob stories, now, twenty-four years old. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we don't know. What started yeah. the podcast <laughs> and you were twenty-three. <laughs> yeah. I think oh you might God. be
2: twenty-four it's, now.
0: We, uh, if you have questions, email us at the story at If there's any way that we can come alongside you. Uh, and help you to grow in the gospel, help you to get connected in community. If we can equip you to live better on mission, that's what we would like to do. And we will catch you next time.
1: We love you guys. Bye. Thanks, Jacob. Text Jacob.
0: My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.